Beautiful Saturday morning in the Steel City. Thanks for being with us. I'm Dan Zang. Really, Bucko Talk. Yep, still talking Pirates. Sports Radio 93.7 The Fan. Glad to have you along. You can text us if you'd like on the Edgar Snyder and Associates fan text line, 412-928-9370. Edgar Snyder and Associates reminding you to text responsibly. Jack Zarenzik is here. Jay-Z. When are we going to have baseball? Are we what? ever going? Are we ever going to work again uh, and, and cover a game, my man? Eventually, we will. When it will be, Dan, I don't know. <laughs> oh, That's prolific, man. isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. I would call you. You're a real Karnak there, Jack. Um, what the, do you think it's going to be this year? Let me ask you that. I do. I think they'll play this year. I don't mm-hmm. know when. I don't know how the length of the season. I just think at the end of the day, there's just too much at stake. You think on both sides, owners and players, uh, you dig your heels in, but eventually common sense has to prevail, and I think you'll have some season at some point. Common sense prevailing here. Uh, Ken Rosenthal writing this morning, Jack, uh, he thinks that the, the whole July 4 return is all but gone, um, and he kind of just paints the dysfunction uh, with, with baseball being as far from a deal as ever, but... I mean, you have been in the game for a long time. Um, you know, there were eight work stoppages between 72 and 95. You were working in the game during many of them in some way, shape, or form with organizations. Uh, one player put it this way in an article this morning from Rosenthal. Uh, if this was a marriage, it would be a divorce. The parties indeed act like a couple about to split talking at each other instead of to each other, recycling the same arguments, stubbornly insisting that the other is wrong. Uh, They are trapped in their relationship, trapped by their respective histories, and the perception of the game then suffers. Uh, Do you agree with that uh, sentiment uh, from an anonymous player quoted this week? There's no question that this damages the game. But there have been many things that have damaged the game over the years. Mm. There's always been the rhetoric from one side to the other. You hear it all the time, not recently, simply because there's been peace. But you go way back to when all of this started many, many years ago with Marvin Miller and all the animosity that, that was there, and it was real. But eventually they got back to playing the game, and there was a number of years, as you said, from 72 to 95, when... You know, after that 95, there was there was peace. You know, there was uh, common sense, again, I'll use that term, where they realize there's so much money being made. Owners are making a ton of money. Players are making a ton of money. Everybody's making a ton of money. It would be stupid to damage the game. We saw what happened after the steroid era, before the steroid era, and led into that. And clearly the game got saved right after that. And I think they're in a position right now where, You think where this country is and people burning buildings, people losing their jobs, all these things happening, COVID-19, everything that's affected the economy and individuals, and we have multimillionaires digging their heels in because of principle. I get principle, and I understand that, but again, I go back to this. At the end, the game is more important than the owners because the owners will be gone. The game is more important than the current players because eventually the current players will be gone. And there'll be a new group of owners. There'll be a new group of players. The game is the game. So someone has to step up and say, you know, we got to bite the bullet here and do what's best for our fan base, do what's best for the game of baseball. We do not need to damage this any more than we're doing at this point. 
do you think that the the leaders of the respective parties truly get that, Jack? Because I, as far as I'm concerned, I, I vote Jay Z for commissioner of baseball right now. <laughs> well, there's a lot of complicated issues here, and I'm sure if you sat with the hundred players, uh, I'm sure a lot of them are not in agreement. But they're not going to buck the union because the union's done so much for them. And then I'm sure you have a group of owners that want to come back. But, again, you, they're going to follow leadership to some degree. But eventually there will be a, a, there'll be a leak in the dam somewhere. And, and somewhere along the way there will be either the player's side, the owner's side, hopefully both. You know, hopefully they get together and say, you know what, we have to do what's best for this game. We have to do what's best for our fan base. That's the most important thing out here. Regardless, everybody's going to benefit. The owners are going to benefit. The players are going to benefit. The money's going to be rolling in. Let's go ahead and play the game because we need to do it because it's the best thing for the game, for the sport. What are your thoughts, Jack, on a 50-game season? Uh, That seems like at this juncture, if there is to be baseball, just with the clock ticking and the leverage that the league has per their March agreement, that if you're able to hedge a bet and place, hey, is it a 50-game schedule, an 82-game schedule, 114 like it was proposed by the Players Association, 50 seems, I would say, at this very juncture, as we sit here on June 6th, the most likely. What would you make of a 50-game sprint, I guess is what it would be, right? Sure, and it becomes this. It is what it is. Uh, It's a very simplistic way to say it, but that's the case. No matter what you have... You don't want to go into this off season with with no baseball, with no playoffs. Now you have total chaos because now what happens to players that were going to be free agents? What happens to uh, service time? Many many issues that are way above my head. You know, in terms of I'm not behind closed doors, so I don't know. You know, what are the major issues behind closed doors? But at the end of the day, you've got to have some kind of season to carry you into the following season. You've got to have something where the fans can hang their hat on and say, okay, at least we finished, we got through this. Okay, maybe it was a 50-game season, but we played baseball. Let's get ready for spring training next year because I got a condo down there in, in Bradenton, Florida, that I can't wait to get to, and I want to see spring training games. You got to end it on a good note is my point. Absolutely. Well, so then uh, I'll, I'll redact this one quote. Um uh, the, the, in Rosenthal's uh, article that, that he wrote, uh, it's really funny. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you on the other side of the break here, uh, so, so do stay with us. One thing I will ask you, Jack, is if you are to play 50 games, do certain players become more valuable? We can discuss this when we return. Or, or what does a roster need to look like uh, if you are playing a 50-game schedule? Because obviously rosters and, and Clubs are constructed for 162. So, from a former general manager's perspective, do you do anything differently? Do you load up your club with X type of players with X type of characteristics or skill sets to try to be able to sprint? Do you put sprinters on your roster as opposed to some of these marathon runners? I don't know if that's practical, uh, but let's discuss that when we return. Hey, folks, 93.7 The Fan teaming up with the Pittsburgh Knights to give you a chance to take on the best Madden 20 players from around the Madden 20 uh, Fan Open. It's presented by SchultzFord.com, Pittsburgh's number one online Ford store. Not only will you be testing your skills against high-level competition, you'll have the opportunity to take down your favorite fan hosts on the virtual gridiron. So just go to 937thefan.com slash nights to register now and then play your way through the open qualifier on June 20th. Be back in a moment. Talking Pirates this morning on Bucko Talk Sports Radio 93.7. The fan, Dan Zangrilli and Jack Zarenzik, third member of our broadcast team covering the Pirates, Craig Riley, 
You can join them every Tuesday at 7 o'clock for Garage Sports Trivia, live on the uh, Instagram page for 93.7 The Fan, brought to you by Precision Garage Door and BetRivers.com. Jack Zarenzik is with me here as... uh, Talking about the the return to to play for baseball, the union and and the the uh, the owners squabbling. The draft is coming up here in a few days. Want to get uh, Jay Z's take on that because he is uh, a former uh, director of scouting uh, and he was highlighted in a, in a great article in the Athletic, uh, putting together those great Milwaukee Brewers teams from uh, 10, 11, 12 years ago. Some players actually still active in the league right now, which is uh, tremendous. Um, but what I uh, wanted to ask you, Jack, before we went to break, is you know the the likelihood of a 50 game season i think seems most likely given where players and uh, owners are at at this juncture and we where we are at on the calendar ken rosenthal writes this morning for those just tuning in that the july 4th return for baseball is is very unlikely he goes on to say that the players and owners are like a couple at a dinner party trying to out argue each other while the other attendees wait to sit down and eat Fans worldwide would love to devour baseball again, but the players and owners are caught up in their pride. And Clark, Tony Clark, the uh, union head, and Manford, Rob Manford, the commissioner, are caught up in trying to protect their legacies and perhaps their jobs. Uh, that's how uh, Rosenthal's op-ed, if you will, uh, ended here that he penned this morning. Uh, very meticulous reporting by Ken Rosenthal. Uh, nevertheless, Jack, uh, 50 games. You think the baseball is going to return? I do, uh, maybe not as strongly as I did before, but uh, for the reasons that you've convinced me, yes, I think it's going to happen. So, 50 games, roster construction. You, the former general manager, you know that you have a 50-game season here uh, that you have to deal with. How do you construct your roster? Do you do it any differently than you otherwise would? The biggest concern, I think, Dan, would be the pitching. You know, what type of shape are our pitchers in? Because we see when we go into spring training, it's spring training for the most part. The length of it is all about getting your pitchers ready. I think that would be the biggest thing you have to address. Position players are who they are. You know basically who your starting lineup is going to be. And the interesting thing about a short season, we've seen guys get on fire for the first two or three weeks of the season and then cool down. We've seen guys have bad first halves and have great second halves and vice versa. You know, so much of of hitting is about timing and and being in the right place at the right time, feeling things when the season starts, and sometimes it takes time. But the pitching is going to be the biggest thing that's going to be the red flag, if you will. What pitchers are capable? How do I construct my bullpen? I don't know how big the roster is going to be. You know who your best pitchers are. You know who your best arms are. And if they give you an expanded roster, then chances are you might take more bullpen arms, very simply because you're going to need them. Uh, the new rules, what are the new rules going to be? You know, is there going to be a designated hitter? How does that play into it? You know, is there going to be a, a three-batter limit? How does that play into it? So all of this is somewhat uncharted waters, and how each organization approaches this will be interesting. But pitching will be the thing that they really have to address first and foremost. So if I'm kind of reading the tea leaves of what you're saying here, Jack, is as it pertains to your pitching, as a former GM, you may be more inclined to uh, maybe have shorter leashes with pitchers, to maybe use more openers, bullpen arms, as you said, you go to them perhaps more frequently if you have more of them. 
Um, it sounds like you know your, your soft tossers, your your lefty ground ball pitchers uh, that are you know your fourth, fifth men in the rotation. They might not necessarily be as valuable in a 50 game season. You might have to consider it almost like a long postseason in some respects, right? In a lot of ways, Dan, you're right, because the other issue is what are the off days? You know, if you're going to play a 50-game season in how many days? They play a 50-game season in, in 55 days or 60 days or 50 days. I don't really know how they're going to do that. Again, how they give you in terms of the amount of players you can have on your roster is going to be another issue. If they expand it, let's say, to 27 players, then I would think that you're going to want to take two extra arms. In terms of the opener, I'm not so sure I, I agree with a lot of that. However, I better have arms in that bullpen who are ready to come in and pitch for me, and I may need some guys to give us length because we don't know the condition that all of our starters are going to be in, and we don't know how it's going to affect. If I have five starters, how's that going to work? You know, and do I have someone else to be a six starter as a long man or a seven starter as another long man? I think those are the things that have to be addressed. All right, well, Jack, uh, turning our attention to the draft, obviously that's uh, your wheelhouse. Uh, you've overseen uh, many of them. And uh, what if you were the director of scouting here and you had five rounds? You had, after those five rounds, uh, a very limited amount of money that you were able to give away, much like all of your uh, peers in the league, which is $20,000 to undrafted free agents that would be six through 10 round, 10 through 20 round talent, largely uh, they're worth much more than that. And you have college baseball allowing players to come back for their junior year, so not a whole lot of leverage uh, on your side as you're overseeing a draft here as a scouting director. That's a tough one to navigate, and it's five days away. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Dan, that is, uh, I think you, you've really addressed what the issues are. Of course, within five rounds, I think what you've got to do is take the best players that you can. You know, and I don't, you don't draft for necessarily need. You just draft for the best talent. Assignability is going to be important because of the limited amount of money. And what happens after the draft, I've not been in meetings, of course, you know, not being behind a desk, not knowing all of the discussions that are going on, but you're going to have to find out who really wants to play. And I think your scouts are going to have to go out there because there's going to be so many players now that would have been 6th, 7th, 8th, 10th, 12th, 15th round type draft picks that are now all free agents. And who wants to play for $20,000? I think that's the number. Is that correct, Dan? Yep, you're right. Correct, yep. yes. So who wants to play for $20,000? And that's the issue. So signability becomes enormously important after that. And what guys? And, I, and the other point is, I don't know the answer to this, Dan. But is there a time frame when you can sign the players? You know, they put a uh, restricted date on in the past drafts where a player had to be signed by a certain date, otherwise he can't sign. So uh, your your area guys have got to really do a lot of homework, and you're you're evaluating guys that you have had very minimal looks at. You really haven't seen a lot of these players play a single game all spring long. I'm not so sure. If you've seen workouts yet, you know, so it becomes very complicated, and a lot of this is going to fall back onto this work that the scouting staff did last summer and in the fall preparing for the draft of this coming year. You just don't have a season, at least any length of a season, to compare players. And that is so difficult, right, Jack, because say you take a look at a college sophomore 
they play at the Cape Cod level, and they go to their junior year. A lot of times, Jack, correct me if I'm wrong, your college baseball junior year is when you see just this enormous leap. That step forward that you take as a player largely happens from a college sophomore season to the junior year. They'll just come onto the scene. So whatever you saw uh, or maybe didn't see in that sophomore year, I mean, you, you could easily be deceived. This is a tough time to be a scouting director, and I do not at all envy for the Pirates Joe Delicari. What's interesting, Dan, is there's been a big change in the game, let's say, over the last 10 years, and there have been general managers uh, with certain ball clubs that would have loved to have sat behind a desk and ran a draft. And I think most people that understand baseball draft, the general managers really don't have a lot of input. They may be uh, certainly cognizant of everything. They want to be updated. But you've always had the spring training and the baseball season going on. So general managers might run out and see a handful of players. But technically, it's your scouting director that runs your draft. It's your scouting director that pulls the trigger. It's the scouting director that makes the decision just simply because he's got the bank of information. The general manager is removed from that. Now, there have been general managers since the game has become very analytical that would love to sit behind a desk, and I think some of them have done it and said, I'm going to do the draft according to analytics. And they would have their analytic staff look at all the numbers on college kids, all the numbers on high school kids, like what a kid did in the Cape numbers-wise, what a kid did his sophomore year to his junior year, as you're stating, and sit there and say, this is the best player. Analytics tell me that. And certainly there are scouts that have input, but there have been general managers that just say, this is what I want to do. I'm going to run it this way, and I think some of them have. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this thing all unfolds because – you don't have eyes on the players, and your information that you're dealing with for the most part is information from many, many months ago. So, yeah, it's not an easy task. Very, very challenging for any scouting director at this point in time trying to run a draft when you haven't seen the players. And then you hack it down to the five rounds, as we mentioned, and we just addressed the issues with the undrafted free agents, how many are not going to be inclined to sign because of the nominal amount that's available to be able to spend on uh, on these particular players. So the numbers issue, right? You might be able to get some quality guys, but quantity, Jack, is also important in a draft class. And I would assume that the quantity of players in 2020 for an organization is going to be reduced drastically. How important uh, of a variable is that? Well, you can fill teams. I don't have any doubt about that. Now, they may not be very good in terms of uh, minor league standards, but there's always going to be players out there that want to play. And if you're realistic about this, if you think about your A-ball clubs or your rookie league clubs, and you think about – I always looked at it as a pyramid, Dad. If you looked at an organization and you were looking at a pyramid, when those guys are in a rookie league, those guys are in low A-ball, they're the bottom of the scale. But, man, everybody likes a lot of them. And then as they begin to climb the ladder, it becomes a pyramid where they get phased out. Now all of a sudden you're looking at your, your organization and you're going, okay, as you're getting closer to the top, we have less players now that we think are legitimate prospects in A-ball. We get to double-A, well, now we got less players. Now you get to triple-A, hey, we even got less players. So the point is those bottom levels right there, you can fill them with guys that just want to play um, because – 
in re, the realistic part of all of this, Dan, is we know that there's always a 17th rounder or a 20th rounder or 40th rounder that come on like gangbusters. But realistically, you're fielding minor league teams to really get a few players to the big leagues. If you look at a, 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 any minor league roster, how many legitimate guys, let's say, on a 30-man or 25-man minor league roster are going to play in the big leagues? Four, five maybe? Uh, and that's probably a pretty good number. And then some of them will be interchangeable parts when you get to AAA up and down, organizational-type guys that fit a need. So, um, yeah, you'll be able to fill teams. It's just, again, the quality will be interesting to see simply because you've got, you have a limited amount of money to spend. You're going to go to some player and offer him $20,000. And he said, no, I'm going back to the University of Florida. You know, Next year I'll get $100,000. So we'll see. You know, Again, it's uncharted waters but very challenging for organizations at this point. Maybe you make it up in 2021. I mean, that has an opportunity to be a draft class that could be simply phenomenal, right? Just deep and, and, and talent rich. Well, again, it's going to be very interesting because, as you said, they're allowing college juniors, even college seniors, to come back and play another year. All right, so now they're a year older. So that junior that you were drafting technically is, a, is now a senior. That senior you were going to sign is now a fifth-year senior, if you will. And, by the way, we got freshmen coming in, too. So you have these freshmen on a team, and you've got the holdovers that would not have been there. Clubs were, colleges were giving out scholarships. I don't know how they're going to work that all out. I'm sure that's, that's in the game plan, but I think it's what 13.1 scholarships is what a division school can offer. Well, if you've given out a bunch of scholarships to high school kids and you've taken your juniors or seniors that you thought were going to be gone or coming back, how does that money get redistributed? That is going to be an interesting scenario for them to work out. Yeah, and, and I just I mean from the, the, the quantity of very good players that are going to be there in 21 because of all of these factors that we're discussing, Jack, and, and what you just alluded to. Holy smokes, uh, whatever you may lack here in 20, you would like to think in 21 that you might be able to make that up because uh, assuming that there's going to be a ton of players returning to college, uh, that's going to be a, there's, it's going to be talent rich for, for the 21 draft. And I think your point is well taken, Dan, because all of the juniors and seniors that would have been able to sign may not sign. Now the sophomores are pushed up to a junior, and you can sign after your junior year. So technically, you've got three draft classes that will be eligible in next year's draft that has never happened before. Yeah, that's going to be crazy. Uh, well, we'll be uh, following the draft coming up this week, five rounds of it, and then twenty grand for uh, undrafted free agents uh, to see what it actually yields for a team, especially like the Pirates. Uh, it's going to be important. It remains to be seen. A lot of questions. We had Steve Sanders, the assistant general manager, Ben Charrington's right-hand man on the show earlier. We'll probably have him back in a couple of weeks to give us the uh, 50,000-foot view of, of what this experience was like. When we return, Jack Zarenzik joins me uh, for a third segment where we will discuss uh, the whole Chris Archer uh I, do we call it a debacle? Yeah, it's probably not unduly harsh to say that. Now that he is done for the 2020 season, if one is played, Chris Archer, the whole trade in totality. Boy, how far back can this set an organization? So do stay with us. That's a conversation that we'll have coming up next. It's Bucko Talk here on The Fan. Follow us on Twitter at 93.7 The Fan, driven by Jim Shorkey Kia, Pittsburgh's number one Kia dealer. Shop all three locations at shortkeykia.com. I'm Dan Zang. Really, Jack Zarenzik 
is here. Jay-Z, we're, uh, we got to keep you in the mix, man, while we uh, wait for baseball to get back. Um, the former uh, GM, a broadcast partner, gosh, it's going to be our, what, fifth year working together or something like that, maybe three or four. four I don't know. We lose track. It's been so much fun. Time flies, Dan. It does. It does. Um, uh, Chris Archer might fly away, right? Uh, he's probably not coming back to the Pirates. He's done for the year. That was the news of the week. Uh, he has an $11 million option. He had earlier this week the old TOS surgery, thoracic outlet syndrome. Uh, that's a big deal. Not a lot is known about it. It's no uh, routine surgery, if you will. Uh, 31 years old, exercised a $9 million option this year, Jack. Um, the, the trade, certainly, not only based on performance, but now here on the health of Chris Archer, goes from awful to, I, I guess, disastrous is, is what it turns out to be. It clearly hadn't worked out, you know, and when you think about it, look about the pirate roster and you when the time of the Trevor, I mean, at the um, Chris Archer trade, I guess you were thinking about Tyone, Chris Archer. You know, Trevor Williams was doing such a great job at that time. We got young kids coming. This might be pretty good, but all of a sudden you got the issue with Tyone, who is, I guess, going to miss his second year, and then you got Chris Archer, who's going to miss. And, you know, the future is going to be very interesting to see how either of these two guys, but clearly Chris Archer with the contract tied to him, you know, whether they'll even pick it up next year. I, I don't know how they can do that, but, again, they will wait and see how that unfolds. Yeah. Um, how much can a trade like this set an organization back, Jack, when you really put all of your eggs in one basket, you pay such a steep price to get Chris Archer with the three players that you put in there? Um, how... How, how cataclysmic, and I don't know if that's unduly harsh or, or hyperbole there, but it, it, I think that that's a, a word that, that comes to mind when I think of this deal. How far back can that set an organization? Well, every general manager in baseball has had good trades, and every general manager in baseball has had trades they wish they could do over. Unfortunately, you can't. Uh, the, the price that they paid for Chris Archer was extremely high, I think you look at the three pieces that they gave up, that was a gold mine for uh, Tampa Bay. And you consider the amount of money Archer was making uh, and the fact that Pittsburgh took that on and figured they were going to have him for a few years, more than just one season. Uh, and I guess Neil felt that they had to do it. Now, the one thing, in all fairness, on any deal, Dan, what goes on behind closed doors is you don't know how much pressure was put on Neil to make a deal you don't know if it was Neil's decision that he convinced those above him or those above him were pushing for him to do something. You just really don't know those. And all of those things play into a lot of deals that are made. You know, sometimes people think that a general manager can do whatever he wants to do. That's just not the case. You have ownership. You have a president of a club uh, that sometimes are saying, we got to do something. And I don't know if that's the case one way or the other. But at the end of the day, I think if you were Tampa Bay and you traded Chris Archer for any one of the three players that they gave up, I think they would have considered that a pretty good return, uh, considering that Boz is supposed to have the big arm. And, of course, we know the two players are basically all-stars. Uh, to give all three of them up was clearly uh, something I'm sure that anyone in this organization or anyone that's a Pirate fan 
could have a redo, they would clearly not do the deal. But at the end of the day, they did it, and uh, they paid an enormous price for it. And, and what can that do, I guess, to an organization moving forward? Because I, I look at the Garrett Cole deal, and I don't want to just you know throw dirt on uh, Neil Huntington's grave because I could point to a number of great trades that he made that did the exact opposite. So that is is general managing, right? And so goes it. But when you look at maybe what you didn't get for Garrett Cole and what you did get in Chris Archer in that acquisition, it truly is amazing, Jack. As a former GM here, uh, you can give me this perspective. You can make two trades, and it can have years-long impact one way or the other. One transaction, or in this case, two transactions, this certainly alters significantly the direction of the franchise, the fortunes of the franchise, for years. These tentacles are going to be deep, and I would like to think that they're going to have long-term ramifications here, and they may not be done, right, for three to four years from now in, in many respects. You know what's interesting, Dan, about small market clubs is you get to a point when they think they have to make a trade. In other words, you get a player that has two years left of, in the Garrett Cole scenario, I got a player that got two years left of control. That's when he's at his most valuable to an opposing club that wants to acquire him. That's the case in terms of Houston. When a player has one year left, there's the, well, he doesn't have quite as much value, although he does have value. But I think in a small market club, you almost have to get to the point, and you're going to face this with Josh Bell, where you have to say to yourself, you know what? I am going to keep the player until he hits free agency, and if he decides to walk away from me, then I will get a first-round pick in return, and i got to live with that. But at least I got six or seven years of that player playing for me in this organization. As a result, if you would have had Garrett Cole, because once you traded Garrett Cole, your return, it's interesting because everyone thinks, and I've been in that seat and I know it well, we love this player in that organization. We love this player in that organization. But they're prospects, and you don't know what you're going to get when you acquire a prospect. Whereas if you keep Garrett Cole, and hindsight is better, as I said, we know it's, it's, it's 2020. But if you keep Garrett Cole and say for two years, I'm just going to do it, and then at the end of the day I get a first-round pick. If I'm going to keep Josh Bell, at the end of the day I get another first-round pick. You've got that player through pretty much right at the beginning of the prime of his career. But what happens is when you trade a Garrett Cole, you're trying to find a Garrett Cole. Who has a number one? There aren't many clubs out there that can say, i got a number one starter. Because once you do that, then I don't care if you get four guys in return, two guys in return, you're trying to replace a key market piece that, that it's just almost impossible to replace. And I think we saw that in the Garrett Cole, Cole, Cole deal. And, again, you're going to face that with Joshua Andrew McCutcheon, you know, a very similar thing. You know, they kept McCutcheon. But, you know, at some point in time, you just have to make the decision that we drafted a player, we developed a player, let the player run his course, and at the end of the day, he leaves, he leaves. There's not much we can do about it. But yeah. at least we would have had him for the length of his, if you will, early part of his, his uh, prime time. And, and, I mean, look what how that would have changed this organization had Garrett Cole still been here. Oh, no doubt. And um, it's amazing how long this Archer trade is going to impact the Pirates, probably from a financial perspective, uh, $9 million load in a, a year where there's absolutely no revenue. 
for, for, for the ownership group, you look at uh, that valuable piece that you did have in Cole that, you know, that I suppose the jury in some respects is still out on Joe Musgrove, but largely underwhelming. That return, it's certainly not going to be impactful or turn your organization's fortunes around drastically in any way, shape, or form. But those two trades in particular, Jack, uh, as it pertains to the long-term impact of this organization, and in this instance, a very negative impact, that is such a tough thing to, to overcome here. And you've taken over organizations probably after bad trades were made by your predecessor, uh, so you look at Ben Charrington here. Uh, he's got to deal with what he's been given, and that's that's a tough thing when you look at the tail of a trade, and especially if it's a, a bad tail. It's true. I mean, at least Ben's got a chance to make his own mark. Unfortunately, the issue is he's in a, what a very weird year to try to your first year in an organization. You don't get to see your big league club play. You don't get to see your minor league club play. Uh, you got a, basically a shutdown season. And now you've got all these decisions to make coming forward. I mean, we talk about challenging. That's very challenging. But let's go back to what we were just discussing. Because the one issue when you traded Garrett Cole, and there are those that can make an issue that Garrett Cole wouldn't have been the same pitcher had he stayed here compared to how he was in Houston. I understand that. And there's probably some validity to that. But once you traded Garrett Cole, then your desire to get another Garrett Cole or to get this, get somebody to lead the top of your rotation was the Chris Archer move. So if you'd had Garrett Cole, you never make the Chris Archer move. Maybe not, or at least you don't pay that kind of price for it because you wouldn't have been as desperate. Now, so you got the Garrett Cole gone, you got Chris Archer on board, and you got three minor league players gone. I mean, that's kind of how you look at, or actually, the minor league big league players because Meadows and uh, Glass now were both already in the big leagues. You know. The, so it's interesting how how that effect really set the organization back for a number of years. But it's history. And like I said, you don't know the reasons behind it. You don't know the pressure that, that Neil might have been under. You don't know all the hidden circumstances. Um, and, and a lot of times, Dan, the unwritten is, is, is what kicked the whole thing going forward. But here we are today, and here's Ben with a huge challenge, and here's a, here's a trade that has awfully set the organization in a position where you wish you had those three guys, but you don't. Jack, uh, from a 50,000-foot view here, uh, how do you assess the Pirates organization, and uh, what do you do with this year? I mean, how do you make yourself better? How do you take a step forward? Does it feel like, in many respects, a lost year? Um, give me just uh, the general analysis on the on the 2020, if there is to be, Pittsburgh Pirates. Every club is in the same boat. So when you're looking at all 30 Major League Baseball clubs, the question you asked applies to all 30 ball clubs. So Pittsburgh's in no different scenario than any other ball club is in. They have the same questions that Pittsburgh has. You don't know who your young guys are. You're your minor league players aren't developing because they're not playing. Um, but at the end of the day, here's the answer. You win with talent. You don't win with philosophies, and you don't win with luck, and you don't win with uh, any other issues, or whatever it is. You win with talent. Talent wins. If you have stars, you have a chance to win. If you don't have stars, you're not going to win. You may have a season that's good, 
But go back to when this organization was really, really good. And you look back at when they had the lumber company and start naming, you can start rhythming off every one of those names. You could go back to when Pittsburgh had Bonds, Bonilla, Van Slyke, Bell, go what they were stars. Then you go back to the recent past, and you've had McCutcheon, who was the MVP of the league, and other players surrounding him. If you don't have stars, you are not going to win. And, and in a small, or small market, you have to develop your own stars because you you're not going to have the finances to go out and bring them in. So where are they right now? Uh, somewhat void of stars, if you will. Uh, clearly have setbacks as well. But I think if you look at the club on the field right now, you, there, maybe you like Reynolds a lot, and I do, but I don't think you can look at any particular player on this club right now. Maybe Josh Bell to some degree. Um, but you, you can't look at it and say, we got stars. We got all-stars. And all-stars win for you. And I think that's what the organization doesn't have at this point. Yeah. And uh, any on the uh, horizon, uh, that remains to be seen, probably doubtful. Jack, uh, appreciate it. I hope we're doing games here sooner rather than later. And uh, if not, we'll just talk about if and when there are going to be games. How about that? <laughs> Dan, enjoyed it a lot. Best to you and your family, and thank you for having me on.